I'm a big believer in, like we said, sports analogies. And it's, listen, choosing to have a, an offense in football that has a strong running game or a strong, like, passing game, there's not necessarily a right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, you can be, there are teams that have been extremely successful. Like, I'm a Colts fan. So the fact that we have a running game right now blows my mind because I don't know of any other time that I felt yeah. that way. But we've had incredible passing game. And the reality is that we still won a Super Bowl with that. And we're still formidable. And there are other teams that have just kind of like, eh, we don't have a passing game, but we have an amazing running game. And they can still be terrifying. Today I'm joined by the Director of Marketing at Vitality, a booming athleisure brand headquartered in Denver, Colorado. John Bowsman has 15 plus years of experience in the marketing industry. He has a huge portfolio of brands that he's worked with, especially Cabela's, Columbia Sportswear, Airhead, and many others. In a past life, John also served as an entertainment TV host and started some Walmart commercials, which we jumped into a little bit. In this episode, we talk about community, brand building, D2C challenges, what's next for D2C brands, and of course, his experience at Vitality and working behind the scenes on conversion rate optimization and things that they're doing to acquire new customers now and in the long term. It was a really great conversation with John. Check it out, and we hope you enjoy it. All right. Welcome to the podcast, John from Vitality. Really appreciate the time today. Why don't we start off and tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Well, first, John, thanks so much for having me. Super excited about this and the opportunity to just share some of my experience. So I'm the director of marketing with Vitality. We are a fast-growing athleisure brand headquartered in Denver, Colorado. Four years young, but growing incredibly fast. Our founders were on Forbes 30 under 30. And very, very fortunate to oversee some of the marketing in-house. So I oversee our paid ads, so paid social, paid search, programmatic, some of our retention marketing like email, SMS, and then web, so SEO, overseeing dynamic yield, and of course, working with you guys on making our site look as amazing and perform as well as it is. So very excited to be on this, and my background has pretty much been 15 years, been a brand and digital marketer. I kind of feel like most people pick a lane in their career as a marketer, and I started out in social media, and I think that's kind of why I was able to kind of stay in both lanes as far as growing in brands and being a really strong brand marketer, understanding what is brand, what is thoughts of like community, things like that. But then also having depth chart in the digital space. So being able to be pretty strong and versatile in a lot of the areas that I mentioned previously. And so my career has spanned across a number of different brands, big and small, from startups to large retailers like Cabela's, Columbia Sportswear, medium size outdoor retailers, but also have a lot of experience within a lot of different ownerships. So everything from entrepreneurs and family owned to privately owned to private equity to publicly traded, so I have a lot of different experience, mainly just because I'm a curious guy and want to dive in and learn and grow. That's awesome. Wow, that's a impressive background. And you left a part out where you were also TV host. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think I everyone would be a little bit interested. I know I was. I did, yeah. So in my 20s, I just pretty much did a lot of random things. And so one of them was originally I went to college to study theater. True story. The only reason why I added marketing was because I read an article somewhere that failed actors went into sales and marketing. So I was like, sweet, backup plan. Like, I'll just be a dual major. But I ended up really liking marketing, so I went that route. But I always had kind of that affinity for either being on stage and speaking or being in front of the camera. And so I eventually joined a talent agency in Indianapolis, Indiana, which is my hometown. And that just turned into a ton of different opportunities. Within a couple of months, which is not common, I ended up landing a gig 
doing Walmart commercials. So I was the face of Walmart in the Midwest. Really sorry, Walmart. I mean, better looking guys weren't available, so I guess they had to settle for me. But <laughs> I took the gig, it helped pay for some student loans. And then from there, I got to be on Parks and Rec for a couple episodes. And then eventually for several years, I would have my, we'll just say day job. So worked for my company during the day. And in the evenings, I would actually go shoot for a regional entertainment TV show, which really what that means is you get to interview celebrities, cover sports, entertainment, concerts, restaurants. And so the ability that I had to really meet some pretty, pretty cool people throughout that time period was incredible. So interviewing everyone from Patrick Dempsey to Andrew Luck with Indianapolis Colts, I've interviewed him a few times. And really, honestly, the one that scared me the most was Nastia Lukin. I was most intimidated by Nastia Lukin because I had the biggest crush on Nastia Lukin at the time. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get to meet my crush. Like, this is, this is a big deal and whatnot. And then her boyfriend, who I think she ended up marrying or something like that, was like with her when we were interviewing. And I was like, well, I don't have a chance. There's no Perfect. chance right now. So. <laughs> but it was a fun time and experience. And I think it really helped me in my marketing career in ways that I never would have imagined. That's great. I mean, it's interesting about the crossover. And you've worked with some really great brands. You started with Vitality. Yeah. Tell us a little bit how you transitioned from some of the other brands into Vitality. I know it's been about six months or so, give or take. Yeah. yeah tell us a little bit about starting. Why Vitality? Why did you go from some of these other brands? What about them yeah. attracted you that you wanted to come there and help them? Yeah. Great question. Before Vitality, I was with a mid-size outdoor brand. The outdoor industry has been a huge passion of mine, both personally and professionally. And so it was going to take a lot to kind of pull me out of that industry. But we were able to grow the company and the brands pretty substantially. And I was looking for an opportunity to be able to make an impact at organization again. And one of the things that attracted me to Vitality was, first and foremost, the brand. It was a very strong brand. They believed in brands. That was very much the ethos of which they came from. And that, that was a challenge and a fight that some marketers have to make in their roles. And so the idea that not only would that not necessarily have to be a challenge as a marketer that I had to push, but the fact that they were believers in brand and led with brand was a big deal. And not just leading with brand or going in that direction, but it was what the brand is. So the idea of inclusivity being about everybody, that was huge. That's something that I really, really found to be true and to be something that I want to be a part of. And then I would also say the, the reality of the culture of the company. The founders, as I mentioned, were on Forbes 30 under 30 and really just being able to be a part of that. And then the third was honestly the fact that we're a pretty young company. We've only been around for four years. And the ability to yeah. use some of the experience that I've had in some of these other organizations, both different sizes, right? Large matrix organizations to scrappy startups and be able to bring that experience of both brand and digital onto a team and onto a company that's pretty young, but we have a lot of a lot of really positive things going for us. And I want to just add value to that. Yeah, that's great. I've seen that as well with Vitality, because we've been working with them, I think, since like end of 2020, or early 2021. And seeing the brand grow, and those things you mentioned about inclusivity and community and branding, there's so much potential there. And, you know, you guys have done such a really great job at getting it to where it is. And there's just so much room for growth, yeah. especially how they focus on community. And I think yeah. that's something that is a high priority for you, a high priority for them, and something that I talk about a lot. Can you tell me a little bit about the Vitality community? Why is it different? Yeah. And also some of the challenges around building a community around a brand? 
Yeah, I think that Vitality has a strong, loyal aspect to their, to honestly the, that community and to people that end up encountering the brand. So from a data standpoint, I can say very strongly that we do really, really well when someone comes to Vitality and they purchase one of our products where they engage with the brand on our different platforms and that's how they come to know the products, they tend to come back. That tends to be a really strong aspect is this returning customer or repeat purchaser. And that is an incredible strength that the brand has. And there's always, right, there's always like a shadow side to everything, right? Because then that means that's awesome. That's a problem that our company doesn't necessarily have to face because we do that well. But then it comes to how do we acquire new customers, right? And there's that whole discussion. But from a community standpoint, I think there are a couple of things that really stand out about Vitaly that have been allowed it to do what we do. The first is the fact that our founders are very engaged and we started out really based upon their social presence by their personal brand, to be quite frank. And from there, the brand of Vitality came forth and grew. And that's been a huge, huge part of that. We went through a rebrand earlier this year, going from the original name of Balance Athletica to Vitality. And that was really just due to an external catalyst, but it ended up being something that really showed, I think, also the power of the community that is a part of the brand. Because most people, that could be an extremely detrimental experience. And you can lose people in that transition. And what's been really, really exciting to be able to see is, despite the hurdles as a part of any rebrand process, the customer has really stayed engaged. The customer has been able to follow us through that experience and really embraced overall the ethos of which we came forth with Vitality. And this idea of really, not, not just the brand and the community, but the idea of, we want you to end up pursuing essentially what really what ends up being like your purpose. What do you want to pursue in life? What is your meaningful existence is really part of that ethos. And so I think that's embedded so much in who we are in general. And just a couple of examples, I think you see that in how we engage on our social platforms. I think you see that in how our founders engage with individuals. Good examples, we actually just did, and we're gonna to continue to do this campaign called Real Bodies. And what we're doing is actually inviting people. These are not necessarily like hired models that we're paying to bring in, or people like me that are just a mouth bring it in. We're actually casting people that want to be a part of it, that, hey, I like the brand, or I'm interested in this. And they're able to do a workout together to actually try the product that we're launching and to do it with some of the founders wow. is an incredible experience one-on-one. -on -one. And that's a level of intimacy that I think exists with the brand that a founder, that a CEO even would do that and would be able to engage on that level. And then the last that I give an example is our pop-up shop, which is coming up on September 17th here in Denver, Colorado. And being able to have a pop-up shop experience, and there's a lot of thought, there's a lot of intentionality that's put behind that experience. And being able within that experience to actually engage with our affiliates, which are essentially people that represent our brand, do an incredible job at that, but then also be able to engage with the founders, which keep in mind, the founders are also yeah. some of the executive leaders of the company. And at what level do you get to do that with? And so I think there's a lot of intentionality put forth to create that community and it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. That's amazing, especially the fact that it came out of a personal brand. And mm -hmm. I think that they kind of did that very early because I feel like that's becoming more and more popular now and it's yeah. going to be 
where a lot of D2C brands come out of is building that platform first, building a community, and then being able to create a brand out of that. That is very hard to be able to start, grow, and then still be a part of in a meaningful way and an authentic way. And the fact that you're doing those pop-ups and engaging with customers, and I've seen Vitality do this in the past just through when we launched the site or when we launched some functionality. This was a while ago. I don't recall what it was, but the community is so strong that once it's something launched, they were all talking about it on Reddit. And there was like some buzz going on. There was a little drama here and there, which with any community, there's going to be some of that. And the founders jumped in and were communicating directly with customers. And you don't see that very often, especially with a brand of your size. The founders tend to be in the background. Maybe they're just a face, but they're actually very, very engaged. How important do you see founders being engaged on that level in building a community? And do you think that's scalable as you start to grow the company larger and larger? Is that something that you can continue to do five, 10 years from now? Yeah. Great question. I think it's integral to building that community, especially when it starts that way. And I think a lot of it depends upon where do you want to go as a brand? What does that perspective look? Mm. And the hard part is, is it scalable? That's a hard question to, to answer because part of that I think depends upon what do you, what do we want to focus on as a business? What do we want to focus on as executive leaders? And what do we want to focus on as individuals? Right? Because it certainly is scalable given the fact of how you shift and make things a priority because similar to for instance if i responded to every single social media post that vitality put out that's not my role but using that as an example right that's certainly scalable up until a point where either one it becomes an issue of time or it becomes an issue of resources or it becomes an issue of focus and i think it's such an i will say this though it's such an important part of the business that I can certainly say that it is a priority when we talk about growing and scaling the company, that that is in fact a huge aspect that I know is important to the founders that they do not want to lose within that. So there may be people, for instance, that are like, hey, we did this at stage one and stage two, but I'm not gonna do this in stage three. There may be brands out there or people like that, where they may be like, hey, I'm willing to do this, but I'm gonna kind of do it from a ghost standpoint. Like I'm gonna have someone else do it on my behalf. That exists. But I think in that realm, you do lose that attachment and that intimacy. And I know how important that is, like the brand is to, and the community is to the founders that as we grow the company, I know that that's important enough that that is a factor that they want to be like, how can we continue to make this important? How can we continue to do this as we scale? And we may not have all the answers to that, but we know that it's important enough that it's not going to go to the wayside. It's not going to be put on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with any business, even with running an agency, right, there's what I try to do is just be as radically transparent as possible with our clients, with employees, and having that kind of guiding light of making sure that the founders are involved in the community, even as things grow. And maybe they are, like you said, maybe next year or three years from now in a phase two or three, they're doing certain different things. That's going to happen, right? They need to shift their focus to be able to focus on on certain aspects and hire great people like yourself to be able to handle things that they maybe used to handle two, three years ago. But having that guiding light of being like, well, look, no matter what we do, no matter what the changes are in our business, that we're still going to prioritize that at oh, some sure. level. And I think just 
brands set expectations, if they're setting expectations with themselves and within the company and with their customers, that as long as that is still a priority, and even though it may shift and look different a few years from now, that it's still something that is a core focus. Um, And that's something I think Vitality has been, has done really well. So some of the challenges with building that community, where any failures, any roadblocks, what has been What's the most challenging part or or some advice that you could give to some other brands who are trying to do that? That's a big question. That's a big question. I asked the big question. (laughs) That's a a good one, John. So I think with the advice part, I'd mentioned before we started that I personally really treasure the word community, but I've heard it in so many different contexts in my life, professionally and personally, Mm -hmm. and even in my individual faith and my, in my faith journey, that word is used a ton. And I went through a study actually on community. It was probably like a month and a half long study that I invested into like, what actually is community? And not just from this perspective, but like how do others see it? It was really helpful. And I think part of it is being able to first understand that one, community can be from a macro perspective, two different things. It can be, and I'm not gonna use the actual, like probably the proper terminology, but we'll say individualistic or actually altruistic. Individualistic Mm. or altruistic. And what I mean by that is in the West, we're very much an individualistic society, right? So when we talk as a culture from a macro perspective, it's from the individual, right? What's good for me? What's in it for me? And you see that. You see that manifest itself from admittedly marketing for a broad term in our culture, right? So you see terms like, and I have a strong opinion on this one, John, where I refuse to do this in my career. I do not enjoy the you deserve it mentality where yeah. you see that on mm-hmm. billboard or an ad, it's like, Hey, buy that expensive thing because you deserve it, which is a very individualistic perspective, right? It's also a entitlement perspective, but from a community standpoint, you actually have the other, which is more altruistic, which is, Hey, what's actually good for the collective group. And that aspect of community is actually far more broad and broadly adapted globally than the individualistic. I forget the exact percentages, but the number of communities that are individualistic from a global perspective is so much smaller than those that are more altruistic. And there's pros and cons to both. But I use that because I feel like that's a very interesting ethos that has helped shift me, but you see this also in other brands and how they market. So you see that where, for instance, we're very much about everybody which is more of that inclusive nature, mm. right? That's powerful. That's a powerful message. But also when you look at like other brands, I'll use one like Cotopaxi in the outdoor industry is a good example of more of an altruistic perspective on community where they end up making some incredible products, but their kind of ethos is the idea of do good. It has yeah. nothing to do with the individual. It has everything to do with the altruistic perspective. And that came from the perspective of that individual founder. And it's incredible. And so I think that that ethos spans down into so many strategic and also tactical levels. That's, you know, where I think that's very different and sparks a lot of ideas for me too, right? Don't really think about it that way. It's a very different way of thinking about community, especially as it relates to brands. Like even thinking about REI, I'm sure you're familiar, they're a big outdoor brand. Love REI. Um, I love them too. And they're like paid membership program, I feel has that we type of mentality, not the me. You're not building loyalty points for yourself. Yeah. Like they actually call it, they don't call it a community. I think they call it a collective. It's the co-op. Um, the co-op, that's the right, co-op. co-op. So it, it even the name that they put on it is yeah. about 
us as a group. The branding there, the naming for that is very good. And then I know that I think they donate a percentage of the membership fees to environmental charities. So like from the beginning, that's like aligning with their core values as a brand. And they're not making their loyalty program about the I. They're making it about the we, right? How can we? Yes, exactly. And we keep saying we. I just recently watched the WeWork thing. And it kind of relates to that in a sense. I know it went downhill from there. But that's the same (laughs) idea as building a community. And that blew up. That was insanely big. And I guess Adam had that same kind of approach to being like, well, it's not about one, well, I guess for him it was about, but bad example. But the idea of that community being about all of us, our collective, like mm-hmm. elevating that, that's kind of a different thinking and now kind of looking at vitality and it doesn't have that individualistic mentality. Yeah. It's about that community. So that's a really, really different way of thinking about it. And I think a lot of brands who are focusing on on that can use that as a takeaway. Kind of shifting to some of the, some tactical things, especially with D2C brands and the different customer acquisition challenges right now. A lot of the brands that we're working with have had to adjust their expectations over the next few quarters. There are certain challenges with attribution, figuring out where customers are coming from. Curious about some of those difficulties. Have you been experiencing any of them? And what are some of the ways that Vitality has been navigating those? For sure. Great question. And I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't just note this real quick too on the community piece as we wrap up that portion is one thing that I really like what Vitality does is they, and they've done this since the start, is they actually invest and donate money from the sales as well into the community. Mm -hmm. And so we actually approach that now on a quarterly basis so we can do more with kind of a, a selected group that we can invest more into those specific communities. And just this last weekend, one of them, Special Olympic, we participated in that as well. Founders were there participating in the playing pool. And so just really rich things where it's like, they've been doing that from the start. Because there's a difference between when it's genuine, which in this case, I can say it is, versus others where the example you may have given about, well, he made it about others, but it's really about himself, right? Where it's disingenuine and there's yeah. a difference there. But switching to the tactical piece that you were talking about, we definitely have experienced that. It's one of those where I can say uh, coming into the company towards the beginning of the year and overseeing, as I mentioned, like these paid channels, where suddenly you see the cap go up, right? So all these different, essentially in short, across the board and almost every vertical that I, at least I have contacts and I've been able to reach out. Are you seeing what we're seeing? Are you experiencing what we're experiencing? Is unless you're food, it's pretty much the same story, which is hey, our cost per acquisition is up. We're paying, in some cases, 2x what we were paying a year ago to be able to get that consumer, but then consumers are not buying, right? So you see conversion rates going down just in general. So you see that cost per acquisition going up. You see conversion rates going down. You see perhaps impact on average order value as well. So maybe they are buying, but they're just, the basket isn't as big, right? And so I cringe at the term when people say, like, I make data-driven decisions. And this is what I mean. I was like, well, I have been with organizations that made data-driven decisions. And they were terrible sometimes. What I might recommend is an ethos of we make analysis-based decisions, right? Of using the data, looking at it. But the analysis is where you give that meaning, right? That's where you actually give it meaning and you interpret it in a way that is actually truly actionable, 
versus being able to just go solely on the data. So for example, how that applies to the current environment, for us, for me looking at our, our paid media and being like, okay, so here's where we're at. These are the different areas that are just more expensive. So we actually started to scale back in some areas. I actually started pulling back on some spend because I was like, at this point, I want to maintain an efficiency level. So instead of focusing on just going gangbuster and keep spending perhaps what I would want to spend was actually pulling some of those channels back to focus in on, on a minimum threshold, right? So that's actually something that I think you can do in this time period is like, hey, maybe shift your focus from that top line number that you want to focusing on your efficiency numbers, right? So whether that's setting a threshold for your CAC or whether that's setting a threshold for your ROAS or focusing on like AOV, but focusing perhaps, or I shouldn't say AOV, but focusing on conversion rate, but perhaps shifting from a macro perspective of revenue target to be like, I just need to maintain efficiency at this present moment, right? Because the law of diminishing returns is much greater, I think, right now than it was a year ago. So that's one. The second is the fact that there are some strategies that you have to put in play that take time. They just do. And there's a reality of you can run an ad today, but focusing on your SEO, that's going to take time. That's a long-term strategy. But the reality is most people, at least in my experience, they enjoy the benefit of SEO when they have it, but they yep. don't have the patience to get there. And the hard reality is selling them be like, listen, we need to do this. We need to focus on our organic because the reality is, is that in six months, 12 months, 18 months, we're going to start reaping the benefits of that. And the reality is what better time to do it than now when you know that the cost for acquiring customers is so great. So why not focusing on the idea of the efficiencies going back to that of like SEO to help in the long term, both in acquiring new customers, but listen, I could spend more time just trying to get more ads going, but at this point, I also want to focus on my organic ranking because one, that's going to drive revenue. Those are going to be typically your highest converting customers. Between email and SEO, those are going to be typically your highest conversion rate channels. And there's a reason for that. And so if we can focus in on that efficiency of driving like a really, really strong conversion, but then that will actually have a trickle down effect on my paid ads as well. So it's not all immediate, but it's like, you've got to start somewhere. You have to start with that now. And then the other is the idea of, okay, well, we do a really good job with that repeat purchaser, right? But a part of that is like, how do we get more knowledgeable or strategic in what that looks like? And so for us, we migrated our ESP to BlueCore. I'm a big fan of BlueCore. It's a ESP that focuses exclusively in the retail vertical. And its strengths are really built upon AI triggers and automation. Like those are some of its best strengths. And so being able to, again, be more efficient with what we do. So as opposed to perhaps batch and blast approaches or perhaps other platforms that may boast of AI or triggers or so on and so forth, a lot of those you still have to build in the rule engine, right? It's still if this, then that, then that versus a platform which has an incredibly great, great track record of success within the retail vertical where I don't have to build that, that out. I just have to build out this general engine and it runs. And that allows my team member to be way more efficient because they don't have to be focusing on the tactical aspect of sending out all these emails all the time. They can be way more strategic in using the data to be like, hmm, maybe we actually need to create this audience or perhaps because BlueCore is so powerful, perhaps we actually want to focus in on maybe that top 10%, which has a customer lifetime value that's double the other 90%. Now that stat's not true. I'm just making that up. 
But that's an example of being able to be focusing on efficiency, both from a paid vertical, both from a website perspective, and of course, being able to focus on retention. And the last is I'd be remiss if I didn't, of course, like talk about focusing on your website and working with you guys, we utilize dynamic yield through you and also being able to focusing on the website experience. And really we've seen some incredibly positive performance on the website due to the site performance and dynamic yield. And having a partner like that, that's, Hey guys, we're going into this season. I was like, I want to focus exclusively of all of our instances on average order value and conversion rate. That's it. Like, I don't, I don't want to focus on anything else at this moment. Those are my efficiency drivers. I'll let the other channels take care of the traffic. Let's focus on converting them and getting that basket out. And so the positive part is that we have seen some incredible results by that, but then being able to work with a strategic partner on, hey, what are some areas that we're missing? What are some gaps that we have, either from a site performance or within our tech stack or our portfolio that makes sense for the business? And so I think there's a big difference when you have someone such as AdX working with you that's a strategic partner that is able to say, hey, I'm noticing a gap here, or I'm noticing a hole. And having someone that's not just able to help with site optimization or building a site or anything like that, but that can actually be a strategic partner to say, hey, not only here are your gaps, but here are some things I'm seeing in the next three to six months that I think you should probably consider doing. Because if you don't, this may happen, but if you do, this could happen. And that's very different than just having a, a partner that's focusing on just building a site. Um very happy with some of the results we're seeing with dynamic yield and running running that program with you guys and i think we've seen some awesome results for jumping into that i do want to circle back a little bit to seo because it's such a broad term and we get asked about it a lot and we're not an seo agency right we do some seo work but we're not an seo agent there's like agencies dedicated or freelancers dedicated to seo seo was I would say that for my business, for Avix, I would attribute the majority of our success to SEO. And that should like speak volumes because looking for brands to be able to execute that. I think you hit the nail on the head where it's not it's not something that you're going to love short term and see the results. The same thing with like fitness, right? People yeah. want to buy protein powders and certain supplements or they want to do certain exercises and this and that or what's the trending diet because that's what's going to interest them in the short term but long term what's going to really matter is like going back to basics and it's going to take a while it's not going to happen overnight and seo is just like that but i focused a lot on seo in the beginning so we're able now this was many years ago we're able now to rank for some of the national terms that were impossible to rank years ago. And I'm seeing their benefits years later, not months. Some cases it could be months, but years later. So it's something that can pay dividends. And what's great about it is like you run an ad and you spend money on that ad. Once you stop running that ad, you're not generating any revenue. With SEO, once you get that good placement or a backlink from somewhere, or you have an article that's ranking for a certain topic, there could be one article that you write about whether you're selling athleisure that ranks for the next five years on no. the first page of Google for a high traffic term. Or if you're a footwear brand and it's about a certain type of sneaker or ways to pair it with chinos and you become the top search result for pairing sneakers with chinos yep. and now you're selling millions of pairs of chinos or shoes 
based off of that article. So SEO is is great. I'm glad you mentioned it. And that's a great tip for brands right now who may have shifted a little bit from acquisition and or at least looking, understanding the attribution when it comes to acquisition, focusing more on SEO is I think is a great tip. As far as on-site and CRO, very happy about the results with Dynamic Yield. What are some of the things that you guys are doing that you think have made the biggest impact? Is it like personalization? Is it tests? Is it kind of like the A-B testing, the product recommendations? You know, what what's some advice that you could give for other brands who might be considering using Dynamic Yield or other platforms or running these types of tests? Yeah, I'm a big believer in honestly like our A-B testing and specifically how it does it from a statistical significance standpoint, because we're four years young and we move fast, right? We're pretty quick to be like, let's do this, let's do this. And part of that is just the nature of starting as an entrepreneurship company and just expansive growth. And what I like about dynamic yield is it allows us to test into some of our theories, into some of our hypotheses, and to have that data that we can extrapolate and be like, did this work? Did this not work? Good example, there was a conversation recently that we had internally of, hey, we should try this. We should do this on the website. And I, I was all for it. I was like, I'm very, very much in, in the ballpark of yes. My recommendation would be, because I have a caveat, this could impact site speed. And that's a pretty important element. And that's something that I continually keep my eye on is, okay, as we're making our changes, as we're looking at apps to add, what is the impact of site speed? And so I was like, let's use dynamic yield and let's test into this instance. And let's see, as we use this, one, was there an uplift in revenue by using it? And then two, what was the impact to site speed? And so it removes perhaps some of the questions as to, okay, is this a good idea or a bad idea? And being able to go off of perhaps past experience or just opinion or hypotheses and to say, let's test those experiences, those opinions and hypotheses and build that out and then let the data decide at that point. And so I think that's an incredibly powerful one and being able to focus in on, of course, like product recommendations or being able to test into different things on a checkout experience, because that's a huge component for anyone that comes to site is when we look at add to cart, right? And actually going to checkout and then completing, there's always a gap there. How do we end up closing that gap? And even just those small wins, just like with SEO, right? Man, if I could just increase that percentage by like 0.2, like not even a full percent, but 0.2, the incremental revenue for that is substantial from a macro perspective. So it's like, you don't have to, I tend to use sports analogies. I'm like, listen, first, you don't have to hit a home run every time. You just got to get on base. You just got to get on base, right? Get that single, get that double. Or I like football. Like I had a team member once who understood sports. So I just use football. I was like, listen, you're trying to do a flea flicker right now. You're not at the point of doing a flea flicker, all right? I need you to focus on your basic blocking and tackling. Because once you get your basic blocking and tackling down, then we can actually run a play. And here's the best part is once we get the running game going, now you can actually do a play action and you can start opening up the playbook. Mm -hmm. And then once you actually get some movement, now you can do a flea flicker. But don't try to do that out of the gate. Focus on your blocking and tackling. Like I'm just going to pull a new rock me mentality here. Just focus on the basic. Build a foundation. Build a foundation. Yeah, exactly. Building that foundation first. Yeah, I, I love a good analogy, by the way. My team knows that I, I go I come up with crazy analogies. Sometimes they're a hit, sometimes they're a home run, and sometimes <laughs> I'm just like, all right, that made no sense. But that made a lot of sense. So yeah, build, definitely building building that foundation first is 
is very important. And that goes with SEO, that goes with a community. That's what a lot of brands miss. And with branding too, like branding, a lot of brands think that, oh yeah, well down the road, I'll start talking more about the core values and brand building and things like that. But that should be one of the first things that you're Absolutely. doing, building that foundation so you can build on top of it. Kind of moving and shifting a little bit to kind of the D2C landscape and some of the differences or the changes that D2C brands have been seeing. So as some of these large D2C brands have grown, like Glossier mm-hmm. or Allbirds, right? Or even Peloton, they're massive. A couple of them are publicly traded companies. It almost feels like they've hit a ceiling. And some of them, in fact, all of them are starting to sell not direct to consumer anymore, right? I think Allbirds is starting to sell in some retail locations yeah. that are not Allbirds. I think they tested Nordstrom's. I think Glossier is now starting to sell on Sephora. And because actually Glossier was one of the top search keywords or search terms on Sephora, even though they didn't sell it. So they're yeah. like, okay, this makes sense. We They have to start selling there. And then Peloton is selling on Amazon. So do you see this D2C ceiling is going wholesale and kind of selling through third parties or selling through retail? Is that inevitable for D2C brands or can they sustain and grow just selling direct to consumer? That's a wonderful question. I like that one. Really quick, a note on my background. So Cabela's was obviously a publicly traded company where the digital side really were about 25% of the company revenue, right? Eventually, I think it kind of moved closer to 20 just due to our store openings. But at this point, just trying to create a holistic experience in retail and web. Then you end up having my previous company, which was very much multi-channel. So you're looking at, we had distributors, we had obviously like retailers that were like large enough to purchase from us. We sold into large outdoor retailer spaces. We were on Amazon and we grew that, but then also I grew our website. And so that's where like you start seeing these like multi-channel elements, which are very, very interesting. And now obviously here at Vitality being exclusively currently like D to C vertical. And it's interesting looking at the pros and cons, because I do think that it depends upon what you're chasing. So in my opinion, if you're a D to C and you are looking at, for instance, like I'll use, I'll just make up like all birds, right? If you're like, Hey, we want to end up like growing the company. If that's what all birds wants to do and they want to sell it. Well, sure. Going into all these different channels might be good from a like gross revenue perspective or just say, Hey, listen, a multi-channel. And that gives me perhaps a little bit more certainty on revenue streams. Okay. Yes. Except the fact that if all birds, again, just making it up, if all birds goal is to sell the company, whether it's private equity or whatever, right? The moment that you start going into those other channels though, you end up actually having a interesting impact on your EBITDA. Your EBITDA multiplier is really just based upon where you end up uh, getting your different verticals for revenue. And then how much is that of your business? And then what are people willing to buy? So very, very simplicity or simply put, if you're a D to C, that's extremely high multiplier relative to the others because you own that customer experience. So you cannot, that's you. So that's an extremely powerful perspective if that's the goal of all birds is to flip the company and to sell. The moment that you start going to those other channels, it does create some complications. It obviously you're going to have to increase your revenue in those other channels to offset the impact of your EBITDA multiplier because you just went from being exclusively D2C into another, like all these other verticals. So that's one thing to consider. And so I think it just depends upon what avenue a company wants to go down. And I've been in private equity before, so that's kind of why I'm just sticking with that private equity example. 
But I think that's one, one component. The second component is what does that product assortment look like then? Because if you're D to C and you start going to those other channels, are those, are the product assortments you're going into those other channels, are they going to be your best product? Like your flagship product? Because you're like, these are our best sellers. We know they're going to move and we want to sell through that inventory and that retail location so that they buy more. Not a bad strategy, but that's going to directly impact your ability to control that on the web. Because now you're pretty much locked in. You can't move that price point because now you're going to upset that channel. The flip side is, do you go SMU and just do special makeups for all of them? Okay, yes, but there's no inventory history. So the retailer is assuming risk that the sell-through is not going to be there. So you're doing that to protect your retail vertical and D2C, but it's not as strong of a sell point to the retailer. So all in all, I do think that there, there are benefits between being solely D2C and there are benefits to going multi-channel. I do think from a customer acquisition standpoint, depending upon how big you get, you do end up having to go to other channels to reach them. That doesn't always mean, in my opinion, that means having to go into the retail location. There are other ways of doing that. That's just a pretty fast way to do it. By getting that PO to go into a REI, is going to be pretty big relative to having to end up acquiring a new customer base. So I don't know if that fully answered your question. I kind of like geeked out there a little bit on the eBay. No, it does. It does. It does. And I think there's some good points there too, especially about creating like special products that are only available in those locations or your core products. I think that's going to be, there's no right answer. I think it's it's going to be dependent on the brand. It really changes your business model and how you're now thinking about merchandising and inventory, even because like when you're selling to those big box stores, I feel like there's a lot more risk there too, right? Because you have to fulfill a certain order. There's different kind of terms that you're going to get paid. You need to send them products. And I know that there's like stories of like smaller brands, especially in the food space, it could be very challenging because you have a perishable product. I think Whole Foods was like notorious for doing this, where they kind of just started. They placed an order, a large order, the producer expanded, took out a loan, produced all of this product, and then Whole Foods like canceled the order like last minute. Just screwed. That that product yeah. is going to be perishable. So there are a lot more challenges. And then it could be a huge step backwards too for a brand that gets into a retail location and the product doesn't do well for whatever reason. And now it's in the clearance section and they eventually cut the orders and that's bad press and it's not a good sign. And I, I think it's about like also like how big do you want your business to be? Like, do you want to be an all birds and go public? And is that your ultimate goal is to become this big mega company that is forced to try to expand into a category that you might not want to be in or where you're going to succeed in? Or do you want to stay a certain size and just own that size and not be a 500 million, $3 billion corporation and have board of directors and all of these things. So like, it's a big shift. And I guess my takeaway is that there's a ceiling if you want there to be and going into wholesale is if you want there to be like, if you want, if that's part of your plan, then it's almost an inevitability, but it doesn't have to be. Totally. I'm a big believer in like we said, sports analogies and listen, Choosing to have a, an offense in football that is a strong running game or a strong like passing game, there's not necessarily a right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Like you can be, their teams have been extremely successful. Like I'm a Colts fan. So the fact that we have a running game right now blows my mind because I don't know of any other time that I felt yeah. that way. But we've had incredible passing game. And the reality is that we still won a Super Bowl with that. 
and we're still formidable. And there are other teams that have just kind of like, eh, we don't have a passing game, but we have an amazing running game. And they can still be terrifying. And so I don't think there's a right or wrong. It just depends on what do you want to do as a business? Where do you want to go? What do you want to be like? Because I, I love what you said there about, do you want to be that big of a company? Because so many times I think we see success in the idea of well, success is starting a company and taking it public, or success is starting a company and then flipping it, or success is filling the blank versus the idea of, well, perhaps if you take more of like a Simon Sinek approach to what success may be, that might change that perspective. So if success is, I want a sustainable business so that I can make a positive impact on the community, bringing it back to that, where yeah, I sell a product that's good. Like it allows us to pay the bills. It allows us to do these other things. But the end goal is not that I'm a $3 billion company. The end goal is that I have a positive impact on the lives of these individuals, on the lives of my community. And I made an impact such that it's memorable for these people. And so that's different. And so part of it does come down to that ethos of like, how do I define success? And if it is flipping the company and going public, hey, go for it. But if it's something else. If it's, I want to make an impact on everybody and allow people to explore what is their definition of a meaningful, purposeful existence for themselves and to have that positive impact on the community, then at that point, that's a different perspective. And that will change perhaps some of your business approaches. Yeah, those are some great points. And I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek and kind of like developing, creating your why and exploring mm -hmm. what that is and understanding that some of your goals might change, understanding that like the vehicle that kind of gets you there could shift and change. But ultimately, if you have that one guiding light of because we exist for this reason. Yeah. So like things might change and the business might change in a way, but as long as we're going towards that why and that end goal, which will keep moving that goalpost further down the line. It depends on how far you want to move it. And if it's ultimately going to, if the approach that you take is ultimately going to get you closer and closer and to meeting that goal or to that aligns with your why. I think he said it a lot better than I did, but you get what I'm talking about. I do. Um, you people can say it better than Simon Sinek. So it's, it's just, <laughs> sure, sure. it's just a different level that he's on. So as far as what's next for Vitality, what are you most excited about moving into the end of this year, going into next year? What does the future hold? Now, I personally am very, very excited for where the business is at from a couple of different verticals. I think that we're at a very exciting point with our product. And we just, for instance, launched a product called Daydream. And it was so well received by the community. And I think that's just like a taste and a teaser of what's to come. And so obviously being on the leadership team, having a window into what's the, what's the product plan for next year? What are those collections look like? What's the approach? I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that because I think that that is just taking it to the next level of already having that brand and that quality and that product that we can offer consumers and then be like, hey, but we're going to take it even to another level, which is incredible. Yeah. So I think that's super exciting. I also think that the place that we're at as a business is an exciting place too, because we've got four years under our belt and we are at a unique place of making some decisions like we were talking about earlier of bringing in certain team members or seeing things through different lenses and being able to say okay how do we want to approach this and so i think i'm excited too for the elements like seo and how do we add that to the mix and add that as a really strong revenue piece how do we build out our email marketing and sms to a greater degree where that takes perhaps some of the like retention reactivation off of some of the other channels and their shoulders and allow them to focus on other elements but 
at the end of the day, all of that is I'm just excited for what we're being able to offer the customer and that community. Because when I'm talking about like next level product or next level experiences, all that comes back to the idea of better serving our community, better serving our customers and allowing them to end up experiencing what that community looks like. And honestly, inviting others into that because there is something very special and unique about vitality. And that's very evident like when you follow it, when you experience it, when you see that in the customer base and being able to find more people that we can say, hey, like we make an incredible product in the athleisure space, that's great. But here's a community of people, here's a brand more specifically that we wanna invite you in and be a part of because it's pretty special. That's amazing, yeah. And I'm super excited to see what Vitality puts out and the amazing work that we're doing together. I look forward to continuing that partnership. Everyone go check out shopvitality.com. They have some really amazing products, great community, awesome website and created by a really cool agency. John, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate your time. And I look forward, maybe we could do this again and have like a a recap next year and talk about uh, some more of the growth stories and how you guys went to 500 million. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Love that. If we're in that, I would love to share that story, so. Positive mindset, that's where we're moving. Set set high goals. That's right, speak it into being. Thank you so much, man, I really appreciate it. Awesome, thanks, John.